My name is Tyler, and I am the editor-in-chief of Signal Horizon, a company dedicated to exploring horror in and out of the classroom. When I'm not managing Signal Horizon, I'm a teacher here at a local high school in Kansas City, Missouri, and I am joined tonight by our co-host and monster ambassador here at Signal Horizon, award-winning author Oren Gray. Hey. What's going on, Oren? Yeah, you know, the same. <laughs> <laughs> Keep on keeping on, right? As uh, as any good monster ambassador will. Well, today we'll start off by discussing what we are excited about, highlight some free horror content on the internet, and conclude with an in-depth look at the Tingler and how it relates to the concept of phenomenology. Oren, what uh, what has got you excited this week, or what uh, what kind of stuff have you checked out? Well, I uh, actually saw Knives Out last week, but it was kind of the last sort of big new thing I saw, um, and it's really super good. Um, so everybody should definitely definitely go see Knives Out, even though it's not not horror. Um, it's a, it's kind of adjacent to you, I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely like an Agatha Christie murder mystery. So you know, kind of adjacent. Close now. Enough. I have heard uh, both from your review that we will link to here from Unnameable. Is that Unwinnable? Uh, Unwinnable, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, plus a few others that uh, it's really funny. Like it, it kind of bills itself as this, uh, or no, like a straight up murder mystery, but it, it really uses humor to kind of punch up, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very funny. And. Like the the marketing for it, at least so far, buries the lead of the film to an enormous degree. Like it is totally what it looks like, in that it is an, like an Agatha Christie style murder mystery. But like who the main protagonist is isn't even clear in the trailers. Like it's not oh, it's not who the right. trailers make it seem like it is. <laughs> I dig it. I dig it. Well, and I am especially big fans of any time that. I don't know. the The trailers don't give the entire thing away. Yeah, you know. So very cool. Very cool. Uh, anything else you want to highlight? Um, not off the top of my head. I watched um, "In the Shadow of the Moon," which is the new thing from Jim Mickle that's on Netflix. But I can't really recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I caught that at Fantastic Fest, and uh, it was okay. You know. Um, I, like I love him. He's great. And uh, I, I also got to interview him, and he's just like big and gregarious. Like actually, very very tall, but <laughs> like big personality. Yeah. And, and believe it or not, uh, kind of in preparation for that, I watched Mulberry Street. Have you seen that? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it's so good. And I think probably what, uh, what Dark Side of the Moon or whatever. Uh, whatever it's called uh, in the shadow of the moon the, yeah yeah shadow of the moon i think maybe what it suffers from like he does better when he doesn't have that big massive budget and they're like it feels like the budget of shadow of the moon is much much larger so yeah uh, i i can't say that 
they do a ton with it, you know? Like, there's not, like, crazy, massive uh, special effects or anything. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more, like, action set pieces than any yes. of his other movies, though. Like, there's, like, car chases and stuff. I mean, not huge ones, but there are some, which is not yeah. not a thing that I've associated with his previous films. Yeah, yeah. Well, <coughs> that's that's part of the, like... Part of the problem of the film, I think, is that it feels so polished, but it wants to be gritty, yeah. you know? And it's like, ah. Yeah. So, yeah, totally, it was, uh, it was a little meh. Uh, I, I think I recommended it, but only with the understanding that, like, it is only a little entertaining and not super duper long and it's definitely not like hard science fiction yeah like it's it's one of those movies that's fun enough while i was watching it but like begins to sort of fall apart as i think about it at all um yeah so yeah yeah. well uh i got to watch a couple of things this this week the first i don't exactly know how to feel about it it is Knives and Skin, which is the newest release from IFC Midnight. In fact, I think it doesn't come out streaming for another couple weeks. But uh, it is one of those movies, like, it feels, I feel like I have read, uh, it's a fever dream. Like, <laughs> a, a, as a descriptor for, like, a thousand films this year, you know? And uh, that's, like, the number one term that the, you know, anybody that has reviewed this and kind of their marketing goes with, too. But uh, it's like coming of age meets Twin Peaks. Um, I think that there's, like, a really strong pro-feminist message to it. But it is really weird. Like, it (laughs) leans real heavy into that weird kind of feeling and I don't I don't know that that would be the one that I don't know if I can fully recommend it not because I don't think it is a fantastic film because I do think there is some really interesting stuff going on I just don't know what the hell it's about you know <laughs> so like uh all right I guess uh, I guess this is this is what we're doing we're gonna watch this for a couple that is of definitely months. a okay. movie I watched yeah yeah right right <laughs> I, I've you know I'm curious to know what everybody else thinks once it uh, gets a, a wider release Probably the thing that I'm most excited about this week, though, is um, so Apple TV dropped like a couple weeks ago, right? And has, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so shows on it. Okay. And their horror show, which is produced by M. Night Shyamalan, it's not written by him uh, or directed by him, but he's got like his hand, I don't know, maybe a showrunner or something, um, is The Servant. And we got uh, some screeners for it. And it is really good. Oh, <laughs> like that's it's, cool. Yeah. Like, it is weird. And you have... So, what I totally dig is every episode is, like, 30 minutes long. And it it means that that storytelling in that episode has to be really tight. Right. And so there's, like, zero filler. While at the same time, every episode, for the most part, takes a completely different, like, path. A, a completely different like you never exactly know what is going to happen next and when you think you have the film figured or you know the show figured out it's like nah it's not going to be about that at all so like I, I think I'm eight episodes in they're going to release the first three tomorrow and then how, a new how many go ahead how many are there I, mean, is, I think there are is it like a limited ten, series or 
Yeah, uh, I think there are ten total episodes. Okay. So they're going to release the first three and then one a week, like every Friday, I think, until uh, until it's done. So I'm almost done with the series, but uh, yeah, it is skewering like like kind of rich yuppie types, uh, while at the same time, like. Their, their issues with parenting because like uh, it, it kind of the, the central conceit is about a baby uh, it's, it's spot on like it treats like parenthood I think pretty well but like not a single person is I would say really likable <laughs> but at the same time you totally want to figure out what the hell's going on with them you know yeah. which I think is a really it's a really delicate line but yeah you gotta gotta check out um the servant on Apple TV, I guess. I don't yeah. even know how much Apple TV costs, but I do know if you have an iPhone, they give you the first year for free. So, so that should be enough time to watch the show, at least. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's it's been a while since anything uh, Shyamalan had his hand in was you know really unqualifiably really good. So yeah, um, yeah, that's that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I liked uh, oh. I liked uh, the visit. The visit, That's a the visit kind of... was good. I also liked Split, which I and I, I did not. I haven't seen it, so it's good. It's good. Um, I did not like the like what the third in that trilogy, Glass, where wasn't it? Yes, Glass. That's yeah. A, yeah, I haven't seen. I, I haven't seen either one of those yet. So it was a big. It was a big swing, and I, I think probably mostly a miss. But you know. <laughs> It, it certainly wasn't an airbender, right? right? It was better than that, so... It, you know, he set a nice low bar there. Yes, for <laughs> sure. So, um, with that in mind, we'll move to our dark corners of the web. Today, I want to highlight a short film that's available um, through uh, a number of different kind of channels, but it's called Riley Was Here. And it's uh, very squarely in the horror genre. Uh, it's directed by John Rhodes and Mike Marrero. And uh, the, I think what is most powerful about this is that it's like post-apocalyptic, but completely different than I think anything else I've seen. It uh, is way more concerned about telling a much smaller story in a post-apocalyptic fashion and in lots of ways reminded me of The Battery. Have you seen that? I haven't. I've heard good stuff about it, though. Yeah. Um, so those guys also have a new movie coming out here in a month or two. But yeah, just uh, real quick, it is 15 minutes long, so it's a little bit longer than your typical short would be, but uh, totally free. So we'll link to it. Uh, here in the show notes, you can check it out and then tell us what you think. So, Oren, this is usually uh, one of the times that we talk a little bit about where to find content. Are, are you a Shutter guy? Do you have Shutter? I do, yeah. What do you think of it? Um, so I have it through my Amazon Prime, so I don't like interface with it directly. But I mean, um, I watched I've watched quite a few things on it. Uh, I don't always know, like, I don't always realize which things I'm watching on Shudder and which things I'm watching the, just because they're on Prime, because, again, the two are just integrated, and I use one through the other. Um, but, I mean, so far I've liked it. I'm probably going to keep it for a while, at least. That's cool. 
Yeah, so if you're like Orin and you want to give it a try, the easiest way is to go to Shutter.com and enter the promo code SIGNAL. In that promo code will get you, I think they give you like a week for free now, but it'll get you a full month. And I think you get a really good sense of like, I don't know what's on it. Yeah, and, I mean, and what, what... I, I think if you're, I think if you were like prepared to really like dive into it, you could watch a lot of content on it in a month because I mean, they're always updating new stuff, but they have a much more limited range of stuff than like Netflix or something does. Yeah. And I think that curation is really important yeah. too. You know, like, uh, oh, it's not just, uh, there is a, I'm not a Netflix hater. They do some great stuff, but man, there is a whole lot of garbage on Netflix. And if you're not careful, you end up spending a lot of time with that kind of garbage. Yeah. So. I mean, and especially with, with the bigger, wider streaming services like Netflix or Prime or whatever, it can be hard to find what you're looking for unless you are looking for something specific. Because, yeah. the, because there is just so much other stuff, and without that kind of focused curation, it can be kind of a... You just spend a lot of time wandering around and not much time watching a movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's probably a great way to sum up something that's so massive they just are are grabbing content, you know, and they don't really give a shit what it's, uh, what it's about. Well, um, what do you say we get into tonight's topic? Sounds good to me. All right. So here's how tonight's podcast is going to work. It's going to be a podcast in three acts. We are going to talk about tonight's movie, which is William Castle's The Tingler. Second, we're going to talk a little bit about the concept. Uh, concept tonight is phenomenology. And then we'll kind of talk about whether or not we think The Tingler fits well within the philosophy and, uh, you know, give our kind of general thoughts about the movie and uh, kind of wrap things up. So, let's move on to Act 1. The Tingler, the 1959 classic. I will be the first to tell you, up until about a month ago, when Oren hosted uh, an event here in town, I had not seen The Tingler. So, if you have not seen The Tingler yet, we are 100% going to spoil it. So, here comes the spoiler bell. So if you're still here with us, then the Internet Movie Database wraps up uh, a quick summary for us. An obsessed pathologist discovers and captures a parasitic creature that grows when fear grips its host. So, Oren, tell us a little bit about, because I know you know this stuff like the back of your hand. Tell us a little bit about the kind of background behind the movie, maybe a little bit even about William Castle and uh, kind of your relationship with this movie. Okay, so yeah. Um, and to start out with, uh, William Castle is one of my favorite directors, even though none of his movies are like great films. They are they are <laughs> they are fun films, but they're not. I mean, they're 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 cheesy, like on purpose. And um, but I, I love him. I love his stuff. But. Uh, the Tingler is probably his best film, even though it's his most famous and my favorite is House on Haunted Hill. But uh, The Tingler is actually probably a better film than House on Haunted Hill, to be completely honest. Hmm. Um, okay. Like, just as far as, like, what its ambitions are and everything. But, um, <clears throat> so, like, William Castle's 
shtick to a large extent was that he he directed these movies and they were you know they were they were drive-in type movies they were you know go have fun at the movies kind of movies and he he built them up and ballyhooed them and the the posters are all like big bold fonts and and made up words and crazy shit and and all of his movies not all of them but many of his movies his most famous movies all had these gimmicks that went with them and so like in House on Hunt Hill the gimmick was called a merjo and the theaters would have this skeleton that was inflatable that would like fly out on a wire over the audience during Love certain it. scenes in the movie or um, like the first movie he did this with was a movie called Macabre and the gimmick in it was that he offered a life insurance policy if you died of fright during the movie. Yes. Just crap like that. Like all of his movies he had had stuff like that and The Tingler had his most famous and most ambitious gimmick which was that uh, the seats in certain seats in certain theaters were rigged with essentially joy buzzers. And so at certain points in the movie, the seat would vibrate to cause people to scream and, and you know, jump out of their seat and, and make a big fuss, um, which, you know, is is just a brilliant, brilliant bit of, of ridiculous uh, showmanship. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah. And so, so yeah, sorry, you had. No, uh, you may. You may or may not know this answer. Sorry, I'm springing this question on you. Yeah. But, uh, like, how... Wh- did he own the theaters that he put the, sh- you know, the, the, the kind of shocky stuff in? Or was it... Because I would also knew that he took on the road a bunch of this kind of gimmicky stuff so that he could share it with people and drum up business. So how exactly did that work with this thing? So as far as I know, um, he didn't own the theaters, but they, as far as I know, they only actually rigged the seats in a few theaters. It did not happen nearly all the times that the, the film was shown. But um, I think it was simply a matter of they would go in in advance. Like, theaters used to do a lot more of this kind of promotional stuff like this. Not, not just for him, but, you know, they would... Like movies coming out was a bigger deal, and theaters would go more all out about them back then. Sure, yeah. Um, and so I, I think he, the theaters, just let him rig the seats. Like <laughs> I think it was. I love it. Um, but I mean, he would also do things like he'd have plants in the audience sometimes who would, you know, scream or or faint or whatever. You know, he did he did all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, well, I I would say. That type of showmanship feels like it's coming back, you know, like because of the ubiquity of streaming stuff, it uh, you got to give give people a reason to go out. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, I, I, like one of the things I mean, Hereditary is is possibly as far as you can get from a William Castle movie and still be a horror movie. But when it came out and they did that whole, like, heart rate challenge thing where they were yeah. showing people's heart rates, and that is 100% something Castle would have done. Like, that, yeah. that is pure William Castle gimmickry right there. Yeah, but that's so great. And so, uh, I don't know, cool to see all of that go full circle, you yeah. know? Like, yeah. Uh, it's almost like, yeah, you don't want to call it schlock, right? I understand that carries with it... Uh, a negative connotation but like we've re-embraced that showmanship and yeah. i 
you know, it's like we've gotten over the fact that we are too cool, you know? <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, I mean, we're not too cool. We want that, you yeah. know? And, you know, and most of the stuff that William Castle made was indeed schlock. Like, and even when it, even when it was at its best, it was good schlock. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And, and fun. I think as I watched this movie, two things, uh, kind of struck me, right? The first was that I, I expected it to feel dated or I, I don't know, maybe not to resonate because of like that, because it was so old, right? right. And, I, and I worried that, because traditionally I never really thought that kind of uh, movie was my thing to my own detriment, because I, you know, I just haven't watched it as much. But it holds up really, really well. Yeah. You know? So one of the things, I mean, one of the things that makes... Um, so there's this handful of movies that are kind of William Castle's most famous movies, which are The Tingler, House on a Hill, 13 Ghosts, um, and I don't remember which other ones for sure that, that this duo worked on. But um, William Castle is the name that gets associated with them, but Rob White was the writer on all of them. Okay. And he did this thing that was really unique at the time and really kind of is still unique, where all of those movies are fundamentally, they're like film noir movies, essentially. They're about like greed and murder and these weird interpersonal, these kind of vicious interpersonal dynamics. <laughs> yeah, and okay. There, but there's also like a monster or a ghost or something that... that you know, I mean, you saw the Tinkler suit, and you know kind of how that how those two things work together in that movie, where right. you have this monster, but also you have this human person who wants to kill their spouse or whatever, and they're using the monster to do it. Yeah, and all of those movies are like that. They're all fundamentally you could remove the the supernatural object entirely, and you'd still have like a crime movie essentially. Yeah. And um, I think that helps them actually feel less dated even than some of the other movies that were coming out at the same time because I think that storytelling technique is kind of timeless and really, really works. And also makes them feel yeah. also makes them feel like they have a little bit more bite than a lot of other movies from the 50s did. Yeah. Well, and it, it doesn't really speak to a particular, like ethic or politic of the day you know like this is all like when uh you know uh dr uh chapin right is that how you say it chapin i don't even remember the, but yeah 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 when vincent price's character is talking to his wife and they have like these series of like kind of cutting remarks back and forth to one another yeah it almost and i don't mean this in a bad way but it almost feels sitcom you know like it it there is a, a particular uh, ease of which those barbs are thrown at one another. It uh, it feels like you could write that today. Right. And it's not, it doesn't have like a 1950s or 1960s aesthetic about like how it's treating relationships. Uh, even with the younger uh, relationship that they portray in the movie, it, I don't know, it doesn't, feel like super conservative and buttoned up it 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 has a a fun about it and it, it is 
really playing, I think, up that fun in the dialogue and, and how quickly the movie moves, because I never, it was never slow, I don't oh, yeah. think. I mean, and it's really short, you know, so, I mean, it's 82 minutes, yeah. but. Yeah, it's... and I think we've talked about this uh, kind of on our own. As I grow older, I appreciate <laughs> a shorter film. Yeah, so, the, you know. The economy is nice, yes. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I can't sit through the two-hour film anymore. So, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Vincent Price plays our main character, right? Yes. Now, this is, uh, would you say, kind of um, towards the end of uh, Vincent Price's career, or is this smack dab, like, vintage price so in this, moment. Th- this is near the beginning of when he became kind of this household horror name um so like his his big horror I mean, he was in some earlier horror movies but his big horror breakout was um house of wax which was okay. in uh 53 so it would have been six years before this Okay. Um, so this was kind of his golden age before, but it was before he got into doing the like Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movies, which are kind of some of the stuff he's best known for now. Okay. Because those were in the '60s, so like this would have been Very right. Good. This would have been right before those. So really, this is uh, kind of two icons meeting at the right moment to create this this very specific thing. You yeah. Know? Like. Did uh, did William Castle go out and get him because he knew he was, you know, like the guy? And and did it was that part of the showmanship? Like I'm gonna bring in this guy who is, you know, at the top of his career doing you know a specific genre stuff. And was it billed that way? I'm. I mean, I definitely know that it was billed that way. I don't know exactly how the. Um how the hiring process went. I know, because uh, he made this and House on Haunted Hill also has Vincent Price, and they were both made. They came out the same year. I think The Tingler came out first, if okay. memory serves. But I know, like, Vincent Price's name is huge on the poster. Um, you know, it's 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 definitely a, a, you know, like, where it's got the cast on the poster, it's Vincent Price, and then everyone else's names are considerably less bold, considerably smaller. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. So um, he he is the draw right, for sure. Right. Okay. Well, I you know, I think he is a goddamn joy in this movie, right? He's super fun to watch. He's he's wonderful, uh, and it's it's one of the few times he gets to play an entirely good guy character too. Like in most of the movies he plays, he's either the villain or he's kind of both. He's like a guy who is a good guy, but then fate and circumstances forces him to take drastic action or something where he does something terrible. And this is one of the yeah. few times where he's like, he is the protagonist and one of the main, you know, main good guy characters. I mean, he does some sketchy science in it. But, yeah, right. But I mean, it's it's about as good as he's usually allowed to be in movies. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and there's a warmth between uh, him and his assistant and his, uh, like, assistant's wife or girlfriend. And Right, who, who think, is his wife's sister, if memory serves, right? Uh, okay. Yeah. I, 
I don't know if that is super successful in establishing that relationship. I like well, it's Im- you get it, it's important because sh- the wife is her guardian. Ah, like Vincent Price's okay. wife is is her guardian, which is why she can't marry his assistant because her guardian has hold of her purse strings, like she's in control of her finances. Oh, and if she marries, if she makes... marries the assistant, she'll cut her off. Like that's the. I don't know. Like maybe somebody that does a much better job of keeping track of all of that would uh, <laughs> would pick up on that. I just, I, I don't know. It felt like there was some sort of familial relationship there but i you know like they don't spend a great deal of time there and they all live in the same house right right yeah uh which i didn't know if that was just the living arrangements because the guy was the assistant and he was like an apprentice or like i i don't know so i i just assumed that and that our boy dr chapin was just a a nice guy you know and and cared about this young couple because I don't know he was a decent guy. It all makes it it makes way more sense now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that, well, and that that's partly it. Partly sets up the kind of um the series of like I don't want to say double crosses, but like uh double crosses for lack of a better word that like all the, <laughs> that all the people do to one another. Where like you know he's he's upset with her with his wife because she's fooling around on him, but he's also upset with her because she's the guardian of this girl and he cares about this, this young couple's relationship and she's standing in their way. Yeah. That, so. well, it gives it, it gives it a little bit higher stakes. Right. I think I get it. Yeah. Okay. It gives, it gives kind of everyone a reason to want to off one another. <laughs> yeah. And there is a little like kind of, uh, you called it film noiry, and uh, that's pretty fitting. But like a kind of a cluey, like, okay, I'm gonna double cross this guy who's gonna double cross me, who's gonna, and then yeah, the the tingler just kind of happens to be a vehicle for all of that. Right. It's it's the know, it's the sort of like, oh, I've had this way I can do this without getting caught, dropped in my lap. Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah, dropped in my spine. Drop, yeah, dropped yeah, in yeah. my spine. Yes. Yeah, I dig it. So. I had talked about how it didn't really have a ton of politics that age it, but there is a passing reference to LSD in this movie. So it is actually, um, it's actually the first studio movie to ever depict the use of LSD. Really? Yep. Okay. So some like underground films had done it, but this is the first time that like a, you know, a major film that was released in theaters uh, showed LSD use. Yeah, and it 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 doesn't mince words with how it treats it, you know. <laughs> like it is uh, a terrifying, not so fun trip into lots of scary shit, right? Yeah, and I mean, it, if anything, it kind of overblows how dangerous it is. Yeah, yeah, it uh, it it does not want you to fool around with that, and. I think that the idea that there is, um, you know, a there is a character in this film who is both um, non non speech, right, non communicative, mm-hmm. vocally, and deaf, and that if there were a problem with this movie, it does not 
I, you know, it, it, maybe maybe the treatment of that character is less than great, you know? Right. But at the same time, like, it's, as someone who, um, so my wife studied American Sign Language for a few years, and so I have mm-hmm. some, you know, exposure with the, the deaf community, and it's, it's interesting because her, the character in this movie's deafness is not portrayed as a disability, particularly. Uh, it, I mean, it turns out to be in this case because she can't scream. Um, right. But other than that, it's treated as fairly normal, which yeah. is which is unusual for the fifties for movies. Um, yeah. Not unheard of. There, there are certainly others, but it's not super common. So that was that's interesting anyway. Even if it's not, I mean, like she's not a great person, but you know, pretty much no one in this movie is a great person. Yeah. <laughs> these, yeah. These people are all kind of vicious. Well, and like she is, I, I think it treats her well. There are a couple of problematic things. <laughs> Number one. Like, I think her husband at one point is like, yeah, she's deaf and dumb, you know. Like, right. Oh, oh, yeah. That's The terminology yeah, like, is certainly dated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, like, she is very much used as a stand-in for an innocent, right? Like, she right. is just trying to get by. There, I think there is an interesting discussion, you know, like, they essentially run this movie theater and so she uh she she does this thing at least partially to uh explore art and if i remember correctly right is it did they just show silent films yeah. in that movie theater yep. it's a silent yeah silent film theater which i think conceptually is really rad you know like she's using um you know this uh this dis- disability to you know uh, still explore art and to make this uh, art form more available. So I think she is a super interesting character and, and it does explore it a little bit, but not entirely. And mostly she's just there to be the victim right. that you feel bad for. Right. You know? um, and it is interesting. Like, I think it's interesting that she runs a silent film theater because her acting, the acting style that she employs is a, very similar to a silent film acting because you know, her character doesn't... I think the actress was a speaking, you know, a hearing speaking actress. But um, yes. but the the style of acting she employs because she never speaks in the movie is very much the kind of more uh, exaggerated facial features or facial expressions and things that you would have used in silent film, which, sure. is, which is interesting. Um, yeah. I think... Uh, I can see that now Now in retrospect, yeah. and And, and some of that is just... The movie's got to employ that, you know, like right. the whole gimmick behind her dying is that she can't make any noise. If she were to make noise and yeah, kind of the movie falls apart. I, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because I guess we haven't actually, we haven't actually exposited this yet, but the, the premise of the Tingler is that, um, that there's this creature that lives inside every person. And when you get scared, it grows. And if you scream, then it shrinks. But if you can't scream, eventually it gets big and it breaks your spine and kills you. Um, and and so this woman who can't scream gets offed by this tingler because she gets scared to death, essentially. Um, it's, yeah, it's off by her husband, actually. But 
Right. The, Who, the, the tingler is the murder weapon he employs. Yeah, I was going to say, because he does it very specifically on purpose with the understanding that she won't be able to help herself. Right, yeah. 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 Um, which, you, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, you have another note on here, and it was one of the things that you talked about um, and pointed out at the screening, which I found super, super interesting from... Uh, just from a filmic perspective, uh, you want to talk a little bit about the bloodbath scene and how that that kind of plays out? Absolutely. Okay. So when the husband uh, goes to goes to scare his wife to death, um, he she has this like morbid fear of blood, which they discuss earlier in the film because Vincent Price like cuts his hand when he's visiting them or something, and mm-hmm. and she has this like horror of blood. So, um, during this sequence where she's being scared to death, where, like, you know, the husband dresses up as a, in a scary mask, and he has this arm reach through a door at one point, and all these different things he does to her, it culminates, she ends up, like, locking herself in the bathroom to get away from, from these scary things that are happening, and the bathroom, like, blood comes out of the faucet, and the tub is full of blood, and... Um, which, it, incidentally, is a very elaborate way to go about killing your wife, but whatever. Um, <laughs> he also... Hey, man, <laughs> if you got the time and you really want to take care of it. <laughs> but, um, so the the sequence with the, the blood coming out of the faucet and the blood in the bath, uh, so The Tingler is a black and white film. And all of the sequences in the movie are shot in black and white, except for those sequences, which have red blood. Only the blood is red, the rest of the color is gone. And um, I never knew, for, for the longest time, I didn't know how they had done those scenes. I had assumed that they had gone through and, like, painstakingly recolored each frame, which was kind of how you did it normally when you wanted to put color into a black-and-white movie back then. Um, but they didn't. They actually shot those sequences in color, using color film, color cameras, but they painted everything to look black-and-white. So, like, all the furniture is painted black and white. Uh, the actress's makeup is all done so that she is just shades of gray. Um, and so it's all in color, but only the blood is red. Everything else yeah. is painted black and white, which is fascinating. Uh, it was also basically lost for a long time. That sequence was in the movie still, but it was a very poor copy of it. Like... It was not until fairly recently that we found like a 35 millimeter original of that color film. For a long time, it was really grainy, crappy versions really? of that film that was spliced in, and it was uh, it was only in the last few years that they found up a 35 millimeter original and remastered it in 4K and everything. So, very cool. Well, after you had told us that when that scene came up, I mean, you can you can tell only because you're looking right. but it is really interesting to look at that whole scene yeah and you can, and you can see, see the grain of the film change when it switches yeah. to like color like yeah you can tell it's a different film stock and everything if you're looking for it yeah but I, I just think uh, incredibly cool I, incredibly cool and creative um, to kind of pull that off because it does it looks it looks rad it looks really cool yeah and but in, uh, and in, you know in 59 it was a fairly revolutionary like scene it was very shocking to have the sudden 
splash of red in the movie. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it is very it, it like it's a little unsettling, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it's only unsettling because the surrounding black and white, you know, right, like, yeah. uh, because of the stuff that's around it. So yeah, it really, it cool. really makes it pop. <laughs> yeah. So we have, um, talked to you in depth about this movie before we move on. I might mention, we kind of started off all of this by talking about shutter. It is available to watch on shutter right now. So oh, awesome. if you wanted to check it out, like, what a perfect way to start your free, uh, you know, your your free 30 days there by checking out The Tingler. Anything else that we need to talk about just from the movie perspective? Uh, I'm I'm sure there is, but I, I don't know what it would be, <laughs> so I think we're good. All right. So let's move on to Act 2, because when we were talking about theories and ideas about how to tie this movie into like a, a, a greater uh, philosophy or a greater concept. The idea of phenomenology came to me and I think that's probably a pretty good place to start. But just to make sure we're all on the same page, let me give you a, a definition from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Phenomenology is the study of structures of consciousness as experienced from the first person point of view. The central structure of an experience is its intentionality. It's being directed towards something as it is an experience of or about some object. An experience is directed towards an object by virtue of its content or meaning together with appropriate enabling conditions. So as I understood phenomenology, it's the idea that we learn better, we experience the world better to actually having an experience and not like exploring the ideas of the concept or uh, like discussing the ontological meaning, right? Like ontology being like ways of knowing right. and, and like it's 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 essentially the the argument that we need to go out and experience shit for it to be real for us. Okay, that makes sense. So that being said, the idea that movies, uh, like my my question to you, my philosophical question to you, Warren, are movies more ontological or are they more uh, phenomenological, right? Are they more of the phenomena? Are they more of the experience or... uh, you know, are they more of these esoteric things? Does that make sense? I think so. And I mean, I don't, I don't know if I know the answer. Uh, to me, they're both, or they can be both. It, it depends on how you approach them. Like, we can go watch a movie and just, and just experience it. I, I say just. We can go watch a movie and purely experience it, or we can sort of take it apart. But usually, usually for me, the taking it apart comes later. Like, it comes after I've watched it several times. And I'm starting to say, all right, why is it... Why is it sort of affecting me the way it is? You know? What, what is it about this that causes that effect? Okay. That makes sense. <clears throat> um, one of the articles I linked here 
uh, in our show notes, and I'll, I'll make sure that you uh, audience out there can see it too, is the idea that horror is uniquely placed to talk about or to use phenomenology because it evokes this kind of visceral um, emotion in the reader or in the viewer or, you know, whatever it may be. But also that it asks the most of us from atmosphere and, like, does so much with it. The name of the, the article here, as I pull it up, is... The Thing, A Phenomenology of Horror by Dylan Trigg. And uh, I, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that there is something innate in horror that enables it to better meet some of those guidelines of what phenomenology is? I mean, I think that... I certainly think there is for some people. I guess that's maybe the best way to put it. That for those of us for whom horror has an appeal, there is. I okay. Don't, I don't know if there is for everyone. Like I don't. I don't want to speak for for other people's experiences, but I think that you know, for those of us who are drawn to horror, that part of the reason is because it has a way to really kind of make us aware and and change our our perceptions and change our our interactions with things in a way that other things don't yeah i think that's fair i think um <clears throat> i don't know i think from uh from an audience perspective of course like there are compelling things about all horror films uh chief amongst them being that they're you know, entertaining. And, you know, like, uh, oftentimes we go see a movie because we want to be entertained. But I also think horror films work really hard and in some ways differently to build anxiety, to build atmosphere, to build set and setting that maybe some other films either aren't that worried about or it's just not it's not as important to conveying what the movie is about. Yeah. Does that make any kind of sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. I, one of the things that draw me to horror movies, um, and I don't want to be, I don't, I don't intend to say this to knock other kinds of movies by any means, but one of the things that draws me to horror movies is that they do have, they do have atmosphere and they do prioritize atmosphere. And, I, and that's not just like, that's everything from like shot composition to sound design and all this stuff because because it is important to their function. Like if you go see a comedy movie, a lot of comedy movies are essentially just a bunch of two what they, what they call two shots, just two people talking. It's just a, a fairly static setup of two people talking. There's not there's not a lot of careful composition. There's not a lot of careful um, you know there's not a lot of careful sound design. You know you don't have a, a soundscape yeah. in a most comedy movies. It's just it's about it's about timing and it's about line delivery and it's about you know natural thing. It has other things going on that are just as important, but it's not prioritizing those like aesthetic touches the same way. Yeah, right. Like it, it's about telling the joke, and sometimes the joke can be about the atmosphere, but it more often than not, like 
where the joke is delivered, especially if it is not like a prop or, you know, something right. like that. It could be at any time in any place, you know? Right. I mean, yeah, there, there, there's a reason why, you know, these sort of classic sitcoms were essentially just a couple of sound stages in front of a studio audience. Like, they didn't yeah. have a bunch of locations and they couldn't change. They couldn't change much. The setting, yeah. setting couldn't really change. The camera couldn't really move. Um, and this worked because that wasn't important to that form, but it is very important to horror often. Yeah. Well, and to further that, uh, there is a really interesting article from Semantic Scholar that I'll link to here as well that makes the argument phenomenology is perfect for horror because horror at its core is about the loss of life and like living is the very like definition of phenomenology, right? Like the experience, the doing the thing, right? Right. And when you're being chased by a killer, right? We have this uh, ability for the audience to live this real event, right? While at the same time, the inevitable conclusion of the, you know, the dude carrying the machete is that he's ending somebody else's like phenomenological uh, like landscape, you know, like this, this, like he's ending a life. Right. Right. And that's, that uh, is, is purely about that philosophy at that moment, which I think is a really interesting way to look at it. It is. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of that. Yeah. But I think also part of the reason why, uh, it, you know, a good scary movie is uh, so terrifying. Uh, and go ahead. One of, one of the things, and I don't, I don't know if this is, I don't know how directly related this is, but it feels related. So, you know, I'll go into it. Um, so I have a, a pretty substantial anxiety disorder. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've talked about with my, my therapist is flabbergasted by the fact that I watch scary movies because she can't. They terrify her. And... You know, she's like, you you have this this really intense anxiety disorder. How can you watch scary movies? And scary movies, they they seldom scare me. But even when they do, it's in a very different way. Like it's yeah. it's a type of of being present and being aware and like being in my body and in myself that is safe where mm-hmm. most of my anxiety does not feel that way. It does not feel safe at all. Um, and, and one of the things you linked me to talks about that. It talks about like, the ontological distance that the, the film provides, where you know you're not in that situation, even as you're experiencing that situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you get like the phenomenological experience of it, but you have the ontological knowledge that you're not really doing it. Yeah, that's, that's and I think that's the important distinction, right? Right. Uh, so it's a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B, which makes them, I think, such great bedfellows, you know? Like, right. And for me, I think that's part of what draws me to film so much, where, you know, I, I read a lot of books and I, I, you know, I read comic books and I read books and I, I do a lot of other ways of read, listen to music and whatever. I, I experience media a lot of ways, but movies have a special place for me, and I think it's because... I think it is because they create that phenomenological experience more than any of those other things do. I feel more in them than I do in a book or than I do in 
you know, sure. uh, whatever, because because they are so many different parts working in tandem. They are a visual component, a story component, an acting component, a, a sound component. Like they're they're engaging every part of my senses and every part of my brain all at once, which makes it yeah. more immersive in that regard. Sure. Well, and, and to kind of wrap up the theory portion of today's podcast, um, the article I mentioned before takes a look specifically at the movie The Thing and makes the argument what makes The Thing so terrifying is it leaves the ontological purpose that you talked about, right? The ability to know that, uh, like, to know what's going on, right? Right. But The Thing combines it with the idea then the corporeal, right? The phenomenological part of it, you you no longer have power over. So it's like knowing that you are entirely powerless over your own body is the ultimate in fear. You know, there is this thing that is going on that it is you, but it isn't you, and you have zero power over it, right. which I think is totally fucked, but explains, <laughs> you know, it explains why that movie is so good. And, uh, you know, like... I think really plays up kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, and that's that's essentially the essence behind what makes uh, the sunken place in Get Out so existentially terrifying too. Because yeah, you know, in in Get Out, you're you're not you're not gone. Like it doesn't erase yeah. you. You're you're still yeah. there. You're just not in control. Yeah, just way down there. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that was pretty pretty rad shit. So the. Third part, right? What uh, what role do we think uh, does the Tingler have with that connection with phenomenology and horror? I mean, like that you know this film better than I do, but very clearly, it it asked the audience to scream, right? It right. had things that w- was an actual experience, right? Right, and 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 it it builds in this notion that screaming serves a purpose like screaming screaming is how you survive in the tingler like it makes it makes your sort of semi-involuntary reaction a tool a survival tool yeah in a very literal way well and and i think it is maybe forcing is the wrong word but it is making the argument that the audience should not just be the the ontological perceiver of the film, right? right. It wants them to participate. Absolutely. Like, the screaming wants to involve them to give them some sort of experience that they can and honestly listening to the other stuff that Castle did with, you know, the the insurance policy or the, you know, the actual ghouls flying above everybody's heads like it wants them to have a very specific experience and my guess is then to go out into the community and talk about that experience absolutely you know? yeah absolutely um on so uh one of the movies i didn't talk about uh he, he made a movie called mr sardonicus which was a remake of uh the man who laughs essentially um which was a silent film but um in it the the audience was actually given these little cards um, where they could vote on how the, <laughs> how the film would end. 
So you okay. held up you held up the card one way if you wanted the film to end one way, and you held it up the other way if you wanted it to end the other way. It never actually had two endings; it only had one. Um, <laughs> so the, the the idea was that everyone would always vote for this one way. But but again, it was that thing where they wanted you to do something, not just watch yeah. the movie, but actually participate in the movie in some way. Sure, that, that totally makes sense, uh, and I love it. And, and you know, to kind of bookend this entire conversation. That's why movie theaters are now giving us that experiential learning, right? Like this, the Screenland Armor, which both uh, Oren and I are huge fans of, like they've showed movies in caves and movies in high school gyms. And, you know, like they are all about creating some sort of uh, experience for the viewer that is not just like passive. Right. Yeah. You know? And that you can't get at home. Right, because that's a big part of it. Is that like when when these movies were coming out, uh, you know, TV was still fairly new, but there was no way to watch movies except in movie theaters. When these movies were coming out, you couldn't watch them at home um, unless you owned a home projector and could afford to buy reels of film. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and so, but nowadays we can all watch movies at home in 4K on our fancy, you know, huge TVs. I mean, we can essentially reproduce the experience of watching the film, and so you have to give us something more than just the film. Yeah. At this no, point. To- I, I 100% think, think that's true. Well, I think you and I are both big fans of this film, but uh, we managed to find somebody who is not. <laughs> um, here, Here is the... Talk about uh, a phenomena... We've now done this for three years, and a variety of different films have graced uh, the stage here at the Horror Pod Class. But never had I had a film that has just two one-star reviews. Just two. And one of them was, like, bitching about the quality of the Blu-ray. It wasn't even, like, a real movie, right? So here is the worst student in the world. And his, or hers... One star review of the Tingler. Uh, I might. This is this is his actual review here. I might also be a Tingler, as I am also allergic to screaming. I especially hate baby screams; they cut right into my spine. Screaming from hair bands like Iron Maiden is quite annoying. Scream queens generally have botched word that sounds like doob, jobs, and poofy hairdos. So poo-poo on them. While we're on the topic, none of those rat lover chicks either. They smell like the elephant exhibit, and my hair always got caught in their nose rings. And I'm weary of their violently realized bikini line lawn ornaments. What the fuck does any of that mean? I have no idea. I'm very I'm very curious to know more about this person's life. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. Maybe I, I, I want to read their memoir. Uh, what I didn't do, I probably should go back through and see if he's got any other reviews because so it'll allow you to. I did look actually. Um, so this person appears to only give one and five star reviews. They have two settings: <laughs> one star or five. Every review is one or the other. Uh, I can't discern a pattern which movies get what. But I did note that they gave the uh, the movie Priest, the one with um, Paul Bettany, where he like fights vampires in the future, oh, or whatever. Okay. They gave it five stars. So wow, um, you know, okay. so so grain of salt and all that. 
Yeah, um, this guy very clearly uh, has a, an aesthetic of stuff that he likes, but um, uh, the tingler is not it. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what it is, but if, if that guy happens to be listening, I want to read your autobiography. Yeah, and learn, yeah, and learn right. and learn more about these um, bikini line lawn ornaments. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, like maybe it is a discussion about women trimming their their pubic hair. I I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming, or or maybe piercings. Maybe. Oh, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Like, like there's like five words in that sentence that are just like an amazing, like violently realized bikini line lawn ornaments. I think that's a band. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what those words mean. I know what each word means on its own. Altogether, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did leave off the final sentence by accident, though. So I, I would hate to, um, D- deprive our listeners this... of that last sentence. Right, right. But the last sentence is, and I quote: "Give me a freshly unwrapped love doll straight out of the oven any day of the week." person seems like a real gem and uh, yeah hi yeah I don't, I don't i don't know well good thing <laughs> good thing that uh, i am relatively certain he was not around during william castle's day because uh he would have given a really shitty review of this i'm sure so well i think uh anything else we want to say about phenomenology or um the tingler before we move on to our Thanksgiving Day preparations, Orin? Uh, the only thing I want to say is that the uh, the first thing you linked me, the, um, I don't remember what it was called, but the the article about, like, cinematic shocks and aesthetic experiences and blah, blah, blah. Yes. Um, like, it's, it's talking about the, like, the group scream or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. William, William Castle would have loved that. Like, yeah. He, he would have been so thrilled if someone brought that up to him. Yeah, no, I think you're you're 100 percent right. That uh, William Castle definitely loves his his shared experiences, especially if it will, you know, make him more money. Right, so. line his pockets a little bit extra. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, um, I think that'll wrap it up tonight for the Tingler and Phenomenology. Warren, where can they find more of your stuff on the uh, internet? I am at uh, orangray.com or I am orangray on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Very good. It's just a picture of a skeleton because no actual pictures of him exist out in the wild. So. None at all. That's not true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not not true at all. But it makes it makes for a great like you know mythos or whatever. It does. Uh, you can uh, catch more of my stuff, obviously, at signalhorizon.com or follow me on Twitter at ty unsel. Or if you have something to say about phenomenology or the Tingler or William Castle or any of that cool shit, mosey on down to the Horror Pod class on Facebook. It's a group on Facebook where we kind of talk about whatever the topic of the you know next two weeks are going to be. So it's a great place to meet other like-minded horror academics uh, like us. So, all right. Well, everyone, have a wonderful Thanksgiving break. When we get back from Thanksgiving break, we have a special guest. Scott R. Jones is going to be on the show, and we'll be discussing the movie Black Mountain Side. Until then, flash the